0: This is John Deek, celebrating 25 years of the Very Young Composers, a program of the New York Philharmonic. And the piece we are hearing is by Cameron Cowan, it's called Harlem Shake, which she composed and orchestrated when she was 11. This is scene six, coming to New York City. Why? Why on earth suddenly decide to go to the grimy streets of New York City when I had a steamship ticket to go with my Oberlin class to beautiful Salzburg, Austria, to study in the birthplace of Mozart and to enjoy climbing in the magnificent Alps, no less? But there was no turning back. I was in the world, this miraculous, crazy, evil, scary, but sacred and beautiful world, for better or for worse. And somehow, I didn't know why but I wanted to be an artist where it mattered. So was I an observer, an opportunist, or an initiator? I couldn't have told you. All I knew was at that moment, back in 1955, watching the Philharmonic and dear Leonard Bernstein, L.B., telling me, me, that art mattered, that music mattered, and that it wasn't just a gift from heaven for geniuses alone, but belonged to all people as their birthright, and their way of making humanity a joy on earth and not just a self-indulgent smear. (laughs) Ah, but New York. Well, my emblematic first sight of the city coming out through the Lincoln Tunnel was watching someone vomit on the sidewalk. Yes, Toto, we aren't in Kansas anymore. And yes, there were many nasty things, but quite wonderful happenings as well. In that first year, I was fortunate to land a pleasant little room in an apartment on Claremont Avenue and Teeman Place from sweet little old Mrs. Davies for $48 a month, just down the street from Juilliard, which was then at 122nd Street and Broadway. My audition for the school went well, and I was harangued right in the street by the esteemed professor Frederick Zimmerman, at that time associate principal bassist with the Philharmonic, for having the temerity to study with Stuart Sankey when I could have studied with him. On the other hand... Juilliard did not accept some of my credits and I failed to be put in the Juilliard Orchestra at first, but in a second-rate ensemble, or a second-rank ensemble, competition was fierce. But what did I expect? And in this small ensemble, wow, I got to play directly with future world-class musicians, such as Yitzhak Perelman, Leonard Slatkin, James Levine. Then they were just students my age. My studies with Stuart Sankey were even better than I had imagined, and I did make friends right away with Gary Carr, the bassist. I would spend time on end, secretly sitting on the floor next to the door of his practice room, learning more about the discipline and precision of hard work than I could have ever done otherwise. Because if I'd knock on the door and be in the room with him, he'd perform for me and not practice. Also by sheer luck, I landed in the theory class of the best possible teacher imaginable, Peter Schickely of P.D.Q. Bach fame. He would give us contrapuntal dictation quizzes by performing simultaneously on slide whistle, ocarina, melodica, and foot drums. We were on the floor laughing— Later, I would snag him for some composing advice with my work, not officially, but much better than in class. He was amazingly supportive. I even had a debate with him once about his quote-unquote serious composing versus his fun P.D.Q. Bach composing. This encounter had an effect on my own composing outlook to be discussed later, but basically asking him, why should composers categorize their works you instead of just letting them flow freely and sincerely as occasion and inspiration suggest i remember peter's answer being somewhat vague and yet logical you have to think of your audience john he said P.D.Q. Bach is enormously fun and satisfying, but there are other musical thoughts and ideas I have that don't really fit into that mold. Hmm. True, I guess, but what am I to make of that? That P.D.Q. Bach was somehow meant as entertainment and not art? The more I thought, the less I could accept that. PDQ came from a very deep part of Peter, and it was of unquestioned brilliance. An even more striking example of this kind of creative split was occurring in Aaron Copeland. Now, remember at this time, Aaron was hardly in his 60s and still a leading contemporary composer. So the creator of the magnificent Appalachian Spring, Fanfare for the Common Man, and the Third Symphony which reached the hearts of Americans during the World War II era, now felt it necessary to bow to the prevailing academy dicta of serial atonality, producing the work Connotations for the opening of Lincoln Center in 1962-63. Again, this is not meant as a dismissal of that artistic style, atonality, which had its own power and reason for being, What was striking to me, however, was that it was almost impossible for me to discern Aaron's sincere and natural voice in that work. Uh, But this issue deserves more, so much more discussion. Oh my God. Stravinsky changed his style, it evolved. Picasso evolved continuously. Shostakovich was forced to change. And yet the voice, the depth, the artistic power remained utterly convincing in all these cases, even if one didn't agree with the path taken. My convictions in these issues guided my own composing. We'll deal with that a bit more in scene 24, but just to say that when listeners, especially other composers, would hear a work of mine, say, Lucy and the Count, Eeyore Has a Birthday, The Ugly Duckling, Lady Chatterley's Dream, or even the bass concerto Jack and the Beanstalk, or The Passion of Scrooge. I would be asked repeatedly what my um, serious adult compositions were like. Well, there they are, I'd say, which remains my only honest answer. I don't write for adults or children. And I certainly don't write to be identified with any concept of an official mainstream, whatever that is. I just write. And so it is in writing these reflections. Even though I obviously sense a greater freedom and creativity in the child's approach, I hope that as you read, you realize I'm not only addressing you as children or as adults or as any age group at all, for that matter. To illustrate what I mean is this. Okay, <laughs> and I'm going to jump here. Once upon a time in Cleveland, I'm going into a time machine to the future, to the year 2006, <laughs> I was engaged by the League of American Orchestras to give an extended demonstration of my very young composer ideas and techniques. The first thing I asked of the participants, some 60 of the executives of our most prestigious symphony orchestras, was to take off their shoes and sit on the floor. <sighs> you should have heard the complaints. But after playing some warm-up games and hearing the four or five professional musicians that I'd arranged to demonstrate their instruments for them interactively, the space—I think it was a large rehearsal hall— it began to buzz with excitement. They all began to compose, using markers, colored pencils, graphic and standard staff notations, voice, and even movement. The outpouring of creativity was amazing, even to me, and almost none of them had ever composed music before. We almost ran out of chart and staff paper. Then we gathered and our musicians performed as many of those compositions as we could, coached by the composers themselves, of course. The participants, all these adults, cheered each other as if they were in a class together, and after the session, I had all of the scores put up on the walls, which almost covered the entire space, just like I would have done at a school. But anyway, (laughs) forgive the digression. Jumping way back in time to the year 1963, which is where we were, and I was age 20, that reminds me of the first of two other significant events that year, which was my audition for the American Symphony Orchestra with the great Leopold Stokowski. Coming up to his dark and elegant apartment on Fifth Avenue overlooking Central Park was a kind of mystic initiation in itself, as my first glimpse of him was his famous profile outlined against the park at sunset. He had me play orchestral repertoire at sight, conducted me meticulously in Schumann, Mozart, Wagner, and an Ives symphony. If Mr. Little back in high school was an imposing figure, (laughs) this man was an august emperor. But in the end he said, "'Le Contrabass is a difficult instrument. You must work hard at basses. "'I will see you at the next rehearsal. Be there early.'" The experience of playing with him in Carnegie Hall that year was unforgettable. I had seen him, of course, in Walt Disney's Fantasia when that movie first came out, and now to play the same works with him in person? Mind-blowing.'" In my first concert with the American Symphony, I was seated next to the great Oren O'Brien, who in a few years would be the groundbreaking first woman in the New York Philharmonic. And I learned so much from her. The other event had to do with the new Philharmonic Hall at Lincoln Center. Leonard Bernstein's meteoric rise in the world had galvanized the drive to build Lincoln Center, Philharmonic Hall, as it was then known, was the first building to complete it just this past year, and the Metropolitan Opera Guild, borrowing the use of the hall, was presenting Rossini's La Cenerentola, which is Cinderella, and hired an orchestra consisting of young professionals. Gary Carr recommended that I be hired to join him in this small orchestra. Whoa! A thrill, of course! But the point is that the new hall had notoriously bad acoustics. And during a time in which I had a few numbers off in the opera, I sneaked out into the audience to hear the acoustics for myself. Ooh, they were even worse than I'd heard about. I sat in various seats, and it was as if I were turning knobs on a stereo set. First I could hear only one part of the orchestra, and then only another, and never could I hear any instruments below middle C. Oi what a problem! Whatever my two years at Juilliard were, they were never boring. In the summers of 1964 and 65, I followed Mr. Sankey out to the Aspen Music Festival, where, besides continuing to practice and take lessons, the dean of the school, Gordon Hardy somehow caught my enthusiasm and gave me some tips on orchestration and symphonic form, which I will never forget. So I continued to study and to hungrily climb every mountain in sight whenever I could get a day off. One of my friends in the bass section back at Oberlin, Richard Hartshorn, known as Dobbs, sort of followed me out to Juilliard and then to Aspen, He was already an amazing mountaineer and became my climbing partner for many, many years. The mountains we climbed, ah, Colorado, was still in a relative wilderness and mountain climbers a rarity. If I may be indulged a divergence to tell a story okay? In that first summer at Aspen, Dobson and I conceived of a desire to climb the northwest face of Capitol Peak in the Elk Range, not far from Aspen. We had a narrow window of time in which we could do it. After our afternoon concert with the Aspen Festival Orchestra, which ended around 6 p.m., we had that evening and the next day off, and that was all. So, We hustled into my old ford to the nearest trailhead, except that there was no trail to that side of the mountain. We had to go more than eight miles before we reached the base of the climb, traversing most of it through swamps and tangled blowdowns. As night fell, we were basically lost and still many miles from the mountain. Under cloud cover with no moon and no headlamps in those days, just a weak flashlight or two. We were up to our hips in muck and finally reached the base of Capitol Peak near sunrise. (laughs) But we had to persevere. As far as I knew, no one possibly had ever attempted the peak from this particular route, and we were about to climb it completely exhausted and without sleep the night before. The climb itself was thrilling, with airy exposure throughout, The technical equipment we used was laughably primitive by today's standards. Dobbs himself did almost all of the leading and seemed to have less trouble than I managing the most difficult parts, the crux, of each pitch or rope length. Near the summit, we intersected with a long knife-edged ridge. Now, when I say knife-edged, I mean you could have sharpened a razor blade on it. The cliffs fell away from this ridge for about a thousand feet on each side. It was like walking on a tightrope over the Grand Canyon. But we were exhilarated, having come this far. In the easy, crazy insouciance of youth, I walked tiptoe across this knife edge, almost dancing, laughing at the abyss. At the summit register, we found that the last person to climb the peak from this direction was in 1923 and by a slightly different route discovery, creating our own path. How we got back down to Aspen in time, for the rehearsal the next morning is beyond me. But the music we played, the Fidelio overture of Beethoven, seemed more compelling and intense than ever. Fidelio's dark descent into the dungeon and later the cry of freedom. But lest I be heard bragging about my mountaineering, please note that my son, Forrest, A professional climbing ranger and firefighter far surpasses me. In fact, all my children do. (laughs) They all surpass me. These days, I'm barely able to make it up to treeline, puffing with a light backpack. But music-making at Aspen was so vitally important. And if I were asked, what was greater, music or mountains, I'd only be able to say, They both feed each other in a way that is both fragile and of great power, a privileged blessing and a rugged necessity, and above all, a synergy of blinding intensity. I remember one evening with a few friends. We hiked up a nearby mountain, had a glorious makeshift feast at night over an open fire in what was then a wilderness. As the others rolled out their sleeping bags, I felt something happening to me in the darkness, a profound shift. I looked into the alpine woods. Something was there for me. I was having a joyous out-of-body experience, and yet firmly in my body. I was transported, not to another dimension, but deep into this one. I began to run wildly into the pine forest, over logs, through bushes, into a meadow, and on and on. I was lost in the wild darkness, yet so firmly at home that I could have lain down anywhere and been at peace. Perhaps I did. I don't remember. Somehow I found my way back, music coursing through me like the blood in my arteries. What could all this mean? I refused to think that I was somehow exceptional. I felt like I was only a tiny strand in the vast web of existence. And yet, somehow this had to be shared, not because I was incomplete, but because I wanted to see how others experienced these miracles and to encourage them as well. But how? I knew that, like Bernstein, I had to be a teacher, a spreader of the joy and the importance of music. But again, how? In what context? I mean, as to brilliance, talent, genius, I could never hope to touch L.B.'s shoe tops. That was an impossible task. But was I then powerless? Worthless? Who knew? How could I give up? I had to persevere. I had to admit... That there was simply so much left to do, so much building of that personal foundation of which I spoke at the beginning of scene four. The main task at hand was still to become a really professional musician. Okay, so that was the first step. So in Aspen, right after the Capitol Peak climb, in fact, I was to play in a chamber ensemble of Benjamin Britten's opera, Elbert Herring, with Britten himself present. This is in 1964, remember? James Levine, no less, was the conductor and selected the performers. There were unusually big bass solos in the part, and I'd studied it and felt ready. And after the rehearsals, Jimmy, as we called him, and I, he called me Dad for some reason, even though we were the same age. We would often walk back into town from the music tent. We'd discuss music, literature, art, politics and he would repeatedly ask me to join the chamber group he was organizing in Cleveland, where he was an apprentice to George Sell. Mm, But I felt my path was going in a different direction. He was clearly disappointed, and later I was glad that I had been firm about that, even though we maintained a mutually respectful relationship over the years, nonetheless. But anyway, back to the idea of becoming a teacher— Stuart Sankey was very supportive of this. As I graduated from Juilliard in the spring of 65, he recommended me to try out with Thor Johnson, who was music director of both the Chicago Little Symphony and the new Interlaken Arts Academy in northern Michigan. Although I could never say that my personal impression of the man was in any way pleasantly favorable, my audition and interview with Dr. Johnson was successful and I was very excited. This is my first full-time professional engagement, and I was soon to be off to the mysterious Northwoods of Michigan. By the way, we're hearing a bit of 11-year-old Maya Lubetsky's Night Sky with the New York Philharmonic.